0: Tonight uh, we are going to finish up chapter 18 and get into chapter 19 a little bit of Revelation, so we are cruising, right? (laughs) Seems like just yesterday we started. (laughs) Um, (coughs) It is, uh, I think, going to go faster here, and we are getting into some, I think, better news than what we've had we saw here at the beginning of chapter 18 this is the fall of babylon and we talked about some of the possibilities as far as you know who babylon may or may not be Um, kind of mentioned that i do believe it seems to be a city Uh, i know mark and i last time we were talking a little bit like sometimes we think babylon is a kind of a an analogy or metaphorical of all the ungodliness in the world, but it doesn't seem to be pointing to that direction in this. It seems that this is the seat of it. This is the throne of Satan, you might say, which does go out and affect the whole world. But this seems to be a specific location, a specific spot. And as you're going to see tonight, the smoke of it is going to go up forever and ever. I find that interesting because it's almost as if there will be a sign of it. You know, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, the, the garden was there. They saw the cherub that were pl- was placed there, and I, I just think, what would that have been like, you know, as their children kind of sneaking up on top of the hill to look over the hill to see the cherub, and, oh, oh he saw us, duck, you know, and run away. What would have been like? But there was always that picture of what could have been in front of them up until, it seems, Noah's flood. But there was evidence of that place being there, and they saw it. This seems to be almost the opposite, that this is going to serve as an example. You know, the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham stood off and he looked and he saw that. And later, Peter, we read that you know, that this serves as an example of those who are going to suffer the eternal punishment of God's wrath. And so we're going to pick up here in verse 22, closing out the destruction of Babylon here. It says, The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeteers shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. One of the things that I find fascinating about this is similar to what we read in Matthew and in Luke, I think, uh, where it says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, marrying, being given in marriage, planting, harvesting, right up to the day that God brought down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah right up to the day until the floodwaters came. <coughs> just as it was in the days of Noah, just as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be. And I remember growing up hearing that that was always, you know, oh yeah, the world's getting evil just as it was in the days of Noah. You know, all the violence, just as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the homosexuality, look at it today. That's what it's going to be like when the end of the world comes. I always focused on all the bad things, but what Matthew says there, and I've talked about this before, but just to remind you, because it's fitting here, nothing mentioned in that part in in Matthew and Luke is sinful, buying and selling, marrying, being given in marriage, planting, harvesting. (laughs) Nothing was evil. They were just so busy with life. They didn't have time for God. And as a result, evil comes about. Notice in this little short section, while in other parts, yes, we know there was evil going on there, I want you to notice it isn't just evil that's going on. There's a lot of fun, a lot of innocence, harpists. I mean, I, I would imagine, you know, the harpists aren't doing the heavy rock and roll screamo music. I, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, maybe back then. I don't know. But the point is, is this isn't bad stuff here. The sound of a millstone. What he's saying is, yes, you guys are evil. And yes, there was all of these other, you sold the souls of men, you did all these things. But listen, notice the life that was going on without a care for your purpose, without a care for godliness. And I think we need to also pay attention to that. It is so easy For us to say, okay, well, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I'm not into pornography. I'm not into sex trafficking. Are you into serving God, though? Are you in to saying, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me? I'm not here for me. I'm here because God gave me a job, a calling. And I'm going to go do it. And so... We can't just focus on the evil. I've said it before, but it's so easy, and I know that in times past that there have been many times I feel like, you know, I'm doing pretty well. It's my Christian walk. I, I'm doing pretty well because, you know, I'm not drinking. I'm not smoking. You know, my swearing. I'm not really doing all those things, and, and I'm not watching the bad stuff on TV. And, and then God showed me what I wasn't doing. And it's like... I'm not looking good. He showed me all the things that I was doing, but for no real value. I was doing it because it was fun. To fill time? I don't know. I'm always reminded of Ray Comfort when he talks about that sheep and comparing our holiness to God's holiness. How you, you look out there and you see that nice white sheep out in the in the, the flock, out in the field out there, and you go, oh, look at that white sheep, and then it snows. And that white sheep doesn't look so white anymore. That is God's holiness, that white, pure white compared to what we see as holiness in this life. So think about that, but look at what we even see here in Isaiah talking about this. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. Okay, it wasn't. The gayness is stilled, at least in our terms of today, but the gaiety of fun. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Now I find it interesting that this is brought up in this passage talking about the fall of Babylon, the destruction at the end times and he says when an olive tree is beaten or when gleanings are left after the grape harvest now there is the physical truth of this that after the grape harvest there was a celebration it's party you know a harvest party is going on but i also think there's a spiritual connection here that as we remember at the beginning of revelation we were seeing that it's at the grape harvest that it seems a judgment is going to take place and god tramples the grapes of you know in his wrath so that the blood flows up to the horse's bridle. So there's a connection to a grape harvest and judgment. We saw that back in Revelation 14. It says, They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. Notice this as well, that while all of this destruction and bad stuff goes on, there is a group of people on the outside that is rejoicing, that is filled with joy, giving God glory. Sometimes people read the book of Revelation, they read this, oh, I don't like to think about that, that's just too, oh, that's too scary. Not if you're on the right side. If you're on the right side, you're, you're giving God glory and joy and praising him. It is good because it is deliverance for you. It is deliverance from all the evils that are going on in this world that we think about, hear about in the news on a day-to-day basis that make you just feel awful and sometimes maybe even feel a little depressed or anxious or fearful. Whatever it is, you will have that no more. I can't wait. So note that there are two sides of this. One for the believer and one for the unbeliever. Now, I feel a need to put my little disclaimer in here for those of you who you know, are gonna take me to absolutely 100% let the pendulum go to one side kind of thing. I'm not saying people can't have fun. I'm not saying people can't enjoy themselves. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about that too, that we are to have joy. We are to enjoy life, but we are to do so with God as the focus and in mind at all times. It's when we lose that focus, and it is a very, very fine line between that. Between just going out and having fun and having fun with God as the focus. And I'm not going to get into that, but just, just so you know, I'm not saying you can't enjoy life but keep that balance there. The joy of Babylon here is certainly gone, but the the joy of the saints is really beginning here. And this is why we need to always remember as well, especially here, well, not just especially, but in the United States, what we're familiar with. I mean, we're sparing murderers Letting people go free while we're killing babies. We're praising homosexuality while we minimize godly marriage. God said, come out of her, my people. I, I think, again, that means that we need to evaluate what's going on. This week we've been hearing a lot about Target. Target. Continuing to hear about Bud Light beer and that company and how people are boycotting it. I'm thrilled. I rejoice. As judgment is poured out, I rejoice. Similar circumstance. That's how it's going to be. And by the way, don't go to Target anymore. We shouldn't have. Okay? Yeah, we shouldn't have a long time ago. They have always been absolutely evil. And we were talking over at the table. Just about every place you go is, just about. But there are some that are over and above. And as we see people standing up and coming out of her, my people, let me tell you, if we can't not shop at a place because it's the only place I can find this particular fashion or this particular whatever, then you're gonna have a really difficult time coming out of Babylon. If you can't fight something so small as that you might need to start exercising those muscles a little bit. And you know, I think it is time for Christians to stand up against these companies that are doing that because I'm telling you, it is working. It will make a difference. But if you are the ones that keep, "Hey, ah, it's okay. I kind of like Babylon. At least that part of it. Then we deserve to share in her punishment. So, think about that. The other thing is, notice come out. Are we to stay and try and change them? Or flee? I think we're supposed to flee. Now, I'm not saying, oh, move from the United States of America. You've got to move to a different country. That's not what I'm saying. It's talking about spirituality. Okay, spiritually you come out, you do not partake of her ways. We also read here in Ezekiel, I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I the Lord have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Tyre, will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall? Sounds just like Revelation, where see the sailors standing off, looking, seeing the smoke go up, mourning. Will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan and the slaughter takes place in you? Then all the princes of the coast will step down from their thrones and lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. They were living it up. Embroidered garments, fancy stuff, name-brand clothing. Clothed with terror, they will sit on the ground, trembling every moment, appalled at you. Then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you, How you are destroyed, O city of renown, peopled by men of the sea. Okay? Now, technically, if you go look at this, this is specifically talking about the king of Tyre in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense, we know it's talking about Satan's kingdom. It goes on, you were a power on the seas, you and your citizens. You put your terror on all who lived there. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. The islands and the sea are terrified at your collapse. This is what the Sovereign Lord says when I make you a desolate city like cities no longer inhabited. When I bring the ocean depths over you and its vast waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit to the people of long ago. I will make you dwell in the earth below as in ancient ruins with those who go down to the pit and you will not return or take place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end, and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never again be found, declares the Sovereign Lord. Again, it seems to be a literal city. I like this idea of this going down to the pit. Sheol, it seems. Remember in the Old Testament, when you died, everybody went to Sheol, but as we see in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which I don't believe is a parable, it seems like there were two separate Places, a good part of Sheol, a bad part of Sheol. When Jesus died and at his ascension, the feast of first fruits, I think he took those first fruit offering, led them captives in his train to be the first fruit offering to his Father in heaven. But those people in the lower parts of Sheol, they're still there, they're still in torment. People who die today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's not rest. There is torment. If you recall, with Lazarus and the rich man, that rich man was down there, and he's pleased, just let him dip his finger in the water. Go, go warn my brothers so that they don't come here. There is torment for those who die. And let me tell you, that is only a foretaste. That's not even Hell. That's just the unrest before judgment. And this is the pit it seems that is being talked about here. It's more like Dante's Inferno seven, seven different layers. I don't know. Not that I want to know. Yeah, right. I don't either. Revelation 18 continuing in verse 23 it says the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Jeremiah 7 here in verses 23 basically is talking about uh, the light of the lamp and the joy of marriage. And he goes on here and he says, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness to the voices of the bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem for the land will become desolate. This was speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, not the destruction of Babylon here. But we see a pattern. The joys and even the things that we enjoy in life will not go with you. There will be an end to them. Jeremiah 25, 10, I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. Again, speaking about even the good, fun, enjoyable, you know, perfectly acceptable things are gone. It isn't just a matter of not doing evil anymore. You don't even get to enjoy life anymore. I think there's, A physical aspect to this. No more marriage. Not even going to care. However, there's a spiritual aspect. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom is not there anymore either. Why? Because there is a separation that has taken place. God is not going to be there for them anymore. They can cry out to him. He will not answer. The bridegroom is not there anymore. The word of God... Not available anymore. Not there to bring comfort. The bride, the bride has been separated. The bride has come out of her. So the bride isn't even there to offer comfort, to give the word, to evangelize. It's too late. It is. The word is pharmakia. That's where I was going next. This word, sorcery. No, that's good. You're right on. That's why I have it underlined. Your merchant's were the great men of the earth, and for by your sorcery all the nations. It's easy for us to think of maybe it's witchcraft or whatever, but the Greek word is pharmakia, from which we get pharmacy, literally drugs. Drugs. Isn't that interesting that by drugs all the nations were deceived? I don't think he's just talking about cocaine, heroin, or even marijuana, although I find it interesting the closer we get to end times, and this might rattle some cages, I don't know, but the closer we get to end times, isn't it interesting the more we're seeing you know, uh, recreational marijuana being legalized in state upon state? Some even going beyond marijuana. Isn't it interesting that most of Americans, most especially Americans, are on drugs? of some sort, prescription drugs. You know, the number one killer of people in the world, in the, well, at least the United States? Prescription drugs, okay? I don't think it's an accident. You know, today we wonder how people can survive without it. Yet, you know, years ago people didn't have any of that and they survived. Maybe the drugs are what's causing most of these problems. I know that, you know, already when I go to the doctor, they're shocked, you know, you're not taking anything? You're not on anything? No. My brothers are, you know, in their 60s and their doctors are shocked. like, you, you don't take no I, vitamins? it's so rare for a doctor to see anybody who's not on something. Now again, I always put my little disclaimer in there, you know. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for some of these things. There is. But our pendulum is so far on the opposite end of this, and I think the Bible is supporting that. I know some people <laughs> actually our friends from Oregon that were here not long ago. You know, they were on things for high blood pressure and then you know, you got to take something to combat something that that, that drug does and then you got to take something that combats what that drug does and you know, you don't even have to eat meals anymore. <laughs> and they've been getting themselves off of these things slowly, by the way. And they feel so much better. Again, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you. I'll go, just go and get rid of everything. Some of you guys might need some of the things you're... I don't know. I don't even know what you guys are on. What I'm saying is keep that pendulum in, in, in balance. But I think that we have put our faith and trust in doctors and in the, the pharmacia and sorcery more than we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we want fixed... Now, rather than waiting things through and letting God and the body do what it does. If I can't be healed in three days or a week, then I guess it's time. Maybe we ought to give it two weeks, two months, perhaps. You know, maybe we'd be stronger if we did that. I don't know. It all depends on things, but these are things to think about. Discipline. And drugs have been a substitute for discipline. Yeah. And so, again... Let the word of God speak to you and say, if the Bible is talking about sorcery, deceiving the nations, maybe we ought to examine that. And you can, only you can apply this scripture to your life. I don't know your life. I don't know what's going on. I don't know your situation. Again, I'm not letting that pendulum go. Nobody should take anything ever. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying... We are over here in America. And you want to talk about deception. You know, the COVID aspect of things, we saw deception going on in the the sorcery of that. To all nations, to the entire world. Jeremiah 16:9 says, "For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Before your eyes and in your days, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, and to the voice of the bride and the bridegroom in this place." Over and over, we're seeing this pattern. Nahum wrote, "All because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of, of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft." I am against you declares the Lord so just to reinforce the same type of things patterns of the past that we're going to see in the future verse 24 and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth Babylon is a source of killing Now these are kind of one of the things that, you know, you you see some connections here to Jerusalem. The blood of the prophets. We we think here um, Zechariah, I don't think I have it here, and so upon you, no it is, it's in Matthew 23 quoting Zechariah. So upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Speaking to the the Jews of that day there. <clears throat> Jeremiah 51, 49, Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain and all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. On one hand, you could look at this, and I, my brain always wants to take this to just Christian persecution. But I think it's so much more than that. It isn't just Christian persecution by you know being beheaded or whatever it is the killing of the Saints through what is taught the corruption of morality which brings about even more literal persecution so I I think there are many layers to this blood of the prophets and Saints Now, with that said, there's no question there has been uh, throughout the world many Christians, even today, that are dying for their faith. But I think that it's more than just the Christian persecution being talked about here. This is a city. Now, we talked about Rome being a possibility. Rome was known for the, the killing of Christians in a great way and we're gonna talk about that more here coming up but uh, just kinda keep keep your your focus broad on what that might mean but nonetheless the influence of Babylon has spread well that is concluding chapter 18 and we're gonna now go into chapter 19 and we're not gonna cover a lot tonight of chapter 19 but Whereas chapter 18 was focusing on judgment, chapter 19 is going to focus on salvation. Chapters 12 through 16 of Revelation, really 18, have been pretty gloomy, to be honest, Um, at least if you're an unbeliever. But even for the believer, we don't rejoice in the fact that people are going to die right now. You will on that day. You will then, but right now, I don't rejoice in the fact that some of my own family members may not be in heaven. But chapters 19 through 22 are quite refreshing. It's basically going to be a celebration of Babylon's fall. And it seems to be the celebration of heaven. The secular world is trying to stop this from happening. That's what Satan wants. He wants to keep this from happening. But we should welcome it. We should welcome the destruction of Babylon. The world is out there trying to save the planet, save the human race through science and technology and vitamins. And we're the ones that are supposed to be out there trying to save the human race through the gospel of Jesus Christ and obedience and letting the word of God bring health to our bones. (coughs) In essence, what we're seeing is the rock that was cut out of the mountain in Daniel's vision. You remember he has a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron mixed with clay. And a rock is cut out of the mountain and it comes and it breaks and shatters this Thing, just completely destroys it. And then from that rock, this kingdom grows up. This is very important to hear. Because in Daniel 2.44, he says, In the days of those kings. Which kings? Well, we had Nebuchadnezzar. You've got Darius and Cyrus. You've got Alexander the Great. Those seem to be pretty clear. But remember when we talked about those kingdoms, when you get to Rome, everything got a little fuzzy. Daniel 2.44 says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It's done. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Note, he says kings, plural, kingdoms, plural, kind of interchangeably like John 17 where horns and kings and hills, or John does in chapter 17. And so it seems that maybe the kings and the kingdoms aren't lining up at the same time in history. But to defend a little bit the preterist idea and where they're getting this, and again to remind you what the preterist view is, is that everything in Revelation was pretty well fulfilled in 70 AD or by 70 AD. Here are some of the verses that they are going to use to bring that type of support. Mark one, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is coming, but yet in Revelation 19, we're going to be celebrating the kingdom of God coming. So how do you reconcile what seems to be somewhat of a contradiction? Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Holy Spirit, God, Jesus coming, the kingdom of God is in you. It's not gonna come by your observation. Oh, what's going on in the news today? Luke eleven twenty. 20, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. None of these seem to say that the kingdom of God is future. These are all verses seeming to say the kingdom of God is already here. And so a preterist view looks at this and then says, Daniel's dream, Rome was the last one. Rome is coming Okay, uh, in 70 AD, destroys Jerusalem, all of that. But they see a preterist view is usually Jews are bad. The church has replaced them. And so now you see the Jews are wiped out and the church begins to grow. And eventually Rome is going to fall. And we see the kingdom of God is increasing and growing and things are getting better and better and better. And eventually when Nassara and Gassara and Trump gets reelected and all of these things and all our debts are wiped out, then the kingdom of God is going to have the upper hand and revelation is going to be fulfilled. Now again, I don't agree with that. But this is why you're hearing those kinds of things. I don't blame them. I, I understand the reasoning. We've talked about, I understand the foreshadowing of things. You know, little smaller uh, prophetic pictures of what is to come. But when we're in here in Revelation 19, let me tell you, there is a spiritual and a physical. And I think that we have seen just the spiritual. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom of god is within you you do not belong to this world you are not of this kingdom you are of the heavenly kingdom you do not now have the physical nature you participate in the divine nature it says in colossians i don't get that ephesians tells me i am already seated with him in the heavenly realms with christ jesus do you guys feel that do you feel like you're sitting in heaven on the throne With Jesus right now? I don't get it either. But it's what Scripture says. So I could take those verses and I think take it out of context and say, yes, the kingdom of God is... that We're here. We're in it right now. We just got to take it by force. (coughs) Which, by the way, how is that worded? Uh, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violence. force. Yes. Okay, so you can see how we can twist this. That is not what we're seeing in Revelation 19, folks. What we're seeing, the Lord is coming back and the actual, physical kingdom of God is going to be upon us. And what is the foreshadow and the empowerment, the embodiment right now is going to come to completion in Revelation 19. Right now, yes, you are the temple of God. And as my brother says, we should enlarge it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, Not quite what it means. But <laughs> pot luck like a boss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just don't... I, I, I guess I just wanted you to see where the preterists are getting some of this. And, and it's understandable. But I just don't believe that that's what this is saying from a preterist perspective if that makes sense alright verse 1 after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying alleluia after these things meaning after Babylon falls and now this loud voice and a multitude where are we in heaven timing wise guys I want you to understand chapter 18 I, I think we're we're off watching in, and we'll talk more about that coming up later. But just out of curiosity, how many times would you guess "Hallelujah" is said in the New Testament prior to the Book of Revelation? Seven. Seven? Okay. Zero. Did you know this is the first time the well, word Alleluia is seen as in Revelation? Because they didn't know the name of God to say Alleluia. Yep. "allelu," Praise Yahweh. Praise Yah. Alleluia. Is what they're saying here. But I find it interesting that that word does not appear anywhere in the New Testament outside of Revelation. And here we're going to see it used four times in the first six verses of chapter 19. Now you tell me this isn't going to be a party. This word hasn't even appeared yet. And now, four times in six verses. Hallelujah. You know, when something just so amazing happens and you are so overwhelmed and overcome With gratitude. That's what this is trying to say. Hallelujah. This is, that means something. That's how special this chapter is. Yep. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. We will have just witnessed the destruction of Babylon, whatever that is, but basically God coming and taking his seat. That rock being cut out of the mountain coming and now that kingdom is about to grow. And we are gonna be so excited. We are gonna be pouring our hearts out, giving God glory and honor. And we're gonna say true and just are your judgments. You're not going to be saying, oh, that poor person. Oh, I hated to see God be so harsh on them. You're going to be like, yes! That might even be hard for us in some ways to even imagine right now. But I think at this point... I think God's grace is going to overcome. I know in Isaiah it talks about the new heaven and new earth. We haven't gotten quite there yet. But it says the former things will not be remembered. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I can tell you this. If you have a loved one, maybe a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a mother, whatever it is. A spouse, perhaps and they are going to be destroyed I don't understand this I just believe it you're not going to be weeping and mourning and feeling sorrowful right now you would be but at this point your focus I think is going to be so much on the Lord Jesus Christ and him that you yourself will have died and you now live only in Christ Jesus I don't know we can only speculate what things are going to be like at this time but I know that it seems there is no It's just all praising God because you were true and you were just. And you're going to recognize that God was so just and so perfect in his judgment that you're going to realize it was deserved. Well, and we'll get into that verse later. But again, some people say he'll wipe away every tear, that that means that you'll have tear and he's going to comfort you. Some look at that and say, that's just an analogy to say you'll never have tears again because he has made you so joyful. I personally kind of believe it's you're going to be so joyful. However, there could be a timing issue here too. I know I think Jamie Walden is more under the essence of you're going to have tear but you will find comfort in it. And so that you might have mourning but joy comes in the morning type thing. Um... I think at this point in chapter 19 I think the tear is gone. I Could be the, wrong. The new tears was the new heaven it is applied to that more so and that's why we're gonna talk about it later not now. At this point it's not said. So all I know to me I like I think it's gonna be more that we recognize when justice is done. You might say that sometimes you know i've seen believers have an an unbelieving close friend relative and they're so evil and so ungodly and maybe a drunkard and they get in a car accident and they die they still had love for him but they're kind of like "Hmm, i don't want to say he deserved it but it was the consequence of his sin and you accept it because you know it was just I kind of think it's that attitude. True and just are your ways. You see, I don't think that they're praising God here in verse 2 because they're saying, Oh, you, you wiped them out! They're recognizing justice has been done, and that's where the joy is coming from. I think it's our flesh that we have a hard time distinguishing sometimes right now justice versus emotions. And so a loved one, because we know them well, the emotions are there. Somebody you don't know, the emotions aren't there, so you see the justice, and it's a lot easier to accept it. But anyway. This is um, praising for the justice, though, too. It's not just like a, yeah. it's not just an acceptance, it's a, it's a praise. Yeah, yep. And glory and honor are giving. He says, you know. Yeah for true and righteous are his judgments, but before that it says glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. Glory and honor, I mean he is worthy of it and I think that we should find trust in the fact that he has that power, he has that honor and glory. Um, God's judgments being true and just was also proclaimed really from the altar you remember way back in chapter 16, verse 7, they were saying, How long, O Lord, until you come and avenge our blood? You can't tell me that, these, that the altar isn't praising God right now. Saying, yes, because they've been waiting for justice. So, um, the other thing that I think is important here is that his justice is going to be based on the precedence of his law. Basically, his laws and the atonement made by him for those who want that atonement. Our perception of right and wrong needs to come from his commandments as well. How do we measure justice? How do we measure what's right and wrong? It's by the commandments, by the word of God. And that's it. When someone is a loved one, I've known families who have had close relatives molest a close relative, but because it's a close relative, our emotions supersede our justice. God does not allow that to happen, which tells us are we right? in letting our emotions, now again, I understand the aspect of mercy triumphs over judgment sometimes, their forgiveness, I get those things. But looking at it from a logical perspective, kind of going back to what we were talking before, emotion should not trump justice. Justice is determined by the commandments of God. And we need to keep that in mind Anyway, he says, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, praise Yah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Revelation four eleven, going back, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will you created and have their being. Earlier, God is being praised because of his creation and power and all of that. Now, he's same thing, but because of judgment on his creation. He created it. He sets the rules. He has the right to judge it. I say this over and over in the creation ministries. That's why, in part, many people do not want to believe in a creator because it means that he created them. If he created them, he sets the rules. If he sets the rules, then he gets to determine the consequences if you disobey those rules. And that's what we're seeing here. Isaiah 34, 10, I will not be quenched. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise Forever. Here we see her smoke is rising up forever, talking about Babylon, this great city that has fallen, reinforcing that idea that from a spiritual perspective, the voice of the bridegroom will not be heard in her anymore. Kind of talking what I was saying at the beginning. They always could see the Garden of Eden. Now they can always see the smoke of her rising up, (coughs) at least until there is a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know, in the new earth, will there still be Maybe this reminder of that? I I don't know. It just says forever here, though. Something to think about as well. Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Those who fear Him. Isn't it funny, again, in the churches today, we're saying, hey, we don't need to fear God. All who fear Him, only those who fear Him, are going to be up there in heaven, praising God. So you better fear Him. We're so quick to get rid of the fear of God, and yet you're not there unless you do fear Him. So different, both small and great. God is not a respecter of persons. To Him, whether you are elite, rich, whatever, it means nothing. And that should give us comfort. Not only comfort if we are not an elite, but also if you are elite, if you are rich, if you are a person of notability, that don't take pride in that it doesn't matter and so maybe what we care about so much maybe our focus is off and we're so worried about what people think and we want to you know get to be famous or we want to get to be well known in the community or we want to get to whatever maybe those things don't really matter because it doesn't matter to god so why should it matter to you amen means it shall be so or it is true and we hear that amen alleluia it is true these four living creatures and and all the elders and them falling down to give him this praise saying it is true it is just it is right it is good um We read here in uh, Psalm 115, verse 13, He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing to fear God. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters and as a sound of mighty thunderings, saying, "Hallelujah!" for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Once again, just this voice of great multitude, the sound of many waters, we saw that back in Revelation 4 and 5 as God was coming in to take His throne, His seat, and we're seeing just His power, His omnipotence, all-powerful. Go ahead. Revelation. Before Revelation. There are some talking like, praise the Lord, that psalms will come up a lot, but, but it's you don't literal, see it, alleluia. Yeah, well, the literal in the Old Testament is saying... To the Lord. There's nothing like no, it's unique and it is reserved and preserved for when he comes back. So when we sing that in songs, I mean, we're, we're waiting for his coming. So it, it's a it's an important word. We've made it just kind of another word. You know, it's just become very mundane and repetitive, but it's pretty special. The word awesome being used for things yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, keep in mind for next week, all of this praise, this is all being set up for what? The wedding banquet. We are about to have a wedding banquet. In essence, what you're seeing going on here is a party. It is a party going on before the bride and the bridegroom are presented. This is what happened in the wedding banquets. We're, we're going to talk about that. And so that's what's going on. Oh man, they they are partying it up, praising God, using words they've never used before. <laughs> so um we want that. Yes. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Just like what I was saying. Why are you doing this? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. The bride is pure. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's important. It's not just righteousness, but righteous acts that come in response of our righteousness. Oh no, all you got to do is just believe in Jesus. That's your work. Because the work of God is this, to believe on the one whom He has sent, right? Now, it's much more than that, isn't it? Scripture, time, every New Testament book talks about obedience to God. Obedience to what? His word. What's his word? His commandments. What's his commandments? His word. It's in the Old Testament. That doesn't make you righteous. That can never make you righteous. But because you are righteous, you now have a white robe, a righteous act. If you do not have righteous acts, you probably do not have righteousness. Because from out of the heart is going to come who you are. And so, as James says, faith without works is dead. So I don't want to hear this from Christians listening that you're preaching works righteousness. No, I'm not. I'm teaching works from righteousness. So, when is this going to take place, is a big question. Well, after Babylon's fall, it seems to me, still, the best that I can make sense of, is that this, is at the end of the trumpets. Because at the seventh trumpet, we hear the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God, and the time to reward his saints has come. That's at the end of the seventh trumpet. We hear in Corinthians and Thessalonians that. There's going to be a, f- a change and a flash and a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, at the sound of the trumpet. And then, since the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God, and now we're seeing, praise God, it's over. Babylon has been wiped out. The kingdom of this sw- that, that big rock is now set up. It is now going to grow and fill it seems to be, to me, that what we're reading here in Revelation 19 is going to be somewhere, probably in that very last line, just right in the middle of that line somewhere, of the seventh trumpet. Best I can make out of it. Okay, So that what we're reading in chapter 18 is probably happening... Maybe in some of those trumpet judgments, and, and the vile judgments take right place right after that, maybe it's kind of all connected at the same time. I mean, this is quick. So the vile judgments destroying all of these things, though, to me seems to be <coughs> all of the earth is destroyed. The vials. All of the sun. All of the oceans. All of the fresh waters. All of the heavens. That seems to be more of... I've already wiped out the city. Now it's going to be time for the rest of it to take place. So if I would be a guessing person, I would probably say it's more like this, that the vials could be after all of this takes place, after the millennial reign perhaps even, to just destroy the earth and then the new heaven and the new earth are formed. But what we're reading right now is actually taking place, you know, some of the judgments of the city and whatnot are in the trumpet judgments. And then at the end of it, the kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of God. So to put some order and chronology to this, that's the best that I have been able to come up with. So you might have to listen to that again to kind of come up make it sense all right we're going to close out with just uh reading a couple of verses here um there is a real wedding banquet coming up like I said, we'll talk about that next week but look at it from a parable perspective at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five were foolish five were wise the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them the wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Almost like there was a the sound of the bridegroom and all of these things are busy, but not busy with God. Their oil isn't full. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. Notice the virgins are going to be with God. And the door was shut. Nobody else comes in. Later the others also said, sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And then what goes on outside? Well, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, same kind of thing. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. He sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The wedding banquet. My oxen and fattened calf, her cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Come out of her, my people, you might say. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Doing normal things, wasn't even sinful, just don't have time for God. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them, and the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. This is the exact order we're seeing in chapter 18 and 19, isn't it? But those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone who you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Frandi asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? the man was speechless and the king told the attendants tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited but few are chosen without wedding clothes he didn't have white robes yep no white robe no righteous acts so he's gone and again you got well what he's there's just a city and you got others that are out there so i, I don't know You know, again, this is indeed a parable, but you can see the connections here. Last slide, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God is going to adorn you with that white linen. What a a blessing, what a gift. You see, this white robe isn't from you, it's from Him. He adorns you with it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If you're trying to do this on your own, without first dying to self, you will not be able to do this. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they are to wear linen clothes. These are the priests. They must not wear any woolen garments while ministering at the gates of the inner court or inside the temple. Again, a picture of the heavenly temple, you don't come in with woolen clothes, you only come in with linen clothes. That's why the priests did that. A picture of what is to come. And last, again, it's a parable, but I think the whole point is, is you won't make it without wedding clothes. Zechariah 3, 4, uh, picture showing uh, the, the cleansing, the, uh, the clothing, the angel said to those who were standing before him, "Take off his filthy clothes." And he said to Joshua, "See, I have taken away your sin; I'll put on rich garments on you." The flesh that we have right now—we live in the flesh. we the good that I want to do. I do not do that which I hate. I keep on doing. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. At that point, you're not going to have any more filthy clothes, any more filthy flesh. By that, I mean sinfulness. I think at this point, when that white linen comes on, all your internal torments, they're gone too. The good that you want to do, you will do. That which you hate, you will not do because you have been rescued from this wretched body. That is worth saying, alleluia. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you. For your word we thank you for your salvation we thank you that the kingdom of God is here at hand but we look forward to it being brought to completion get us to that day we pray Lord come quickly and may you give us a sense of justice a sense of truth that our emotions would not drive us but that your word and your truth would in the name of Yeshua we pray amen